Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You know, for me, innovation is often about intersections, about where two bodies of knowledge intersect. Mm -hmm. And in those places, I think there's much more complexity. And I think innovation sleeps in those places. And it's our job as educators to wake it up. And when you bring together teams of people with various kinds of expertise who speak different language, that's where new knowledge is getting built as much as anywhere. So, you know, for me, that's a really exciting thing to think about in the future of art and design. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy. I'm Jamie, and this is Clever. Today, we're talking to furniture designer, maker, and lifelong educator, Roseanne Summerson. She's currently the president of one of the most prestigious art schools in the world, Rhode Island School of Design. But her relationship with RISD goes way back. She actually discovered her love of woodworking and furniture design back when she was a young undergrad at RISD in the industrial design department. BFA in hand, she launched her design studio and quickly established herself as a noteworthy artist and craftsperson within the field of studio furniture. While building her award-winning studio practice, she simultaneously embarked on a career as an educator, first returning to RISD to teach industrial design before co-founding RISD's freestanding furniture design program. And that's where I met her. This is Amy, by the way. I got my MFA from RISD in furniture design while Roseanne was heading the department. Since then, she's become an administrator and very much a thought leader in art and design education. She's a mentor of mine, and she's both exceptionally kind and a total badass. Let's talk to Roseanne. I'm Roseanne Summerson. I'm president of Rhode Island School of Design, which is in Providence, Rhode Island. And why I do what I do, I've had a really fortunate career as an artist and designer and teacher. And at a certain point, I decided it was really my time to create the conditions for artists and designers for the future. And being the president of RISD was a great way to take that on. Thank you. Well, we're glad you took it on. I want to do some time traveling. So let's rewind and go back to your childhood. Where were you born? What was your family like? Just tell us a little bit more about how you grew up. Sure. So I was born outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I was the youngest child, two older brothers. And for various parts of my childhood, grandparents living in the house with us. My grandparents had a lot of medical issues. And so I kind of grew up 
half house, half kind of hospital ward in a way, but it gave me a really interesting sort of insight into different ways that people live in the world. And spent a lot of time reading and hanging out and alone, and but also, you know, helping out with the family stuff that was going on. So kind of actually super shy when I was little. I remember going out in public and literally hiding under my mother's skirts. You know, it took me a while to kind of find my own voice in the world. I found it. Here I am. <laughs> So were you like a creative kid? You mentioned reading, but did you do any artistic, creative stuff like drawing or painting? You know, we really didn't have access to materials or actually, you know, we did, we had coloring mm-hmm. books and my mother used to always try and get us not to use them to do our own drawings, but we, we didn't have, you know, we had a box of crayons and like a pad of paper. So it wasn't the kind of thing where we were really invested in having a lot of art in our school or anything like that. But at one point when I was in elementary school, my mother signed us all up for some art class in the local community center. And we actually got to work with clay. And that was sort of my first experience. And I remember the teacher actually showing us how to roll out a tube of clay so that it rolled out evenly. So you don't just keep your hands in one place, but you kind of roll them down the tube and I remember the the person next to me was, you know, just consistently rolling out these these things. And the teacher said to them, what are you making? And she said, a worm. <laughs> she said, well, try and do something a little more ambitious, like use your imagination, throw yourself into it. And so the little girl took a, a bigger wad of clay and rolled it out. And the teacher said, well, what are you making now? A snake. <laughs> so I, that was a very clear memory. But, um, you know, I loved that first experience with clay because it was, you know, we made an object. I actually made... My grandparents, who were very much a part of my childhood, like a three-dimensional portrait of them. But it was the first time that I actually got to see an object sort of made and permanent. And so that was really exciting. I did a lot of sort of poetry writing growing up. And then when I got a little bit older, I started making all my own clothes. And so I was really into sewing. And I would literally made all my own clothes um, in high school. And I I didn't really get into drawing very much until I decided to apply to RISD. And I got fascinated with photography. My brother was a photographer. He actually, at the time, did the photograph that was on the front of the Woodstock program cover. Oh. And he got to travel around when he was young. He was in high school as well. But he got somehow, I don't know how he linked this up, but... A bunch of us used to have a work with the producers of the Philadelphia Folk Festival. I did writing of biographies of the artists and he did photography. And somehow through that, he got to travel with all of the Chicago blues artists. He got to travel with Buddy Guy and Junior Wells and all of these amazing blues musicians. So his his room was full of six foot photographs that he'd taken on tour with all of these um, great blues artists. And From that, he at one point showed me how to make a photograph, and it was just magic watching this piece of paper go into the tray. You know, this was before digital, obviously, and at the other end was the magic of this photograph. So I got really smitten and started doing photography. Okay, so wait, I want to talk about photography. I want to talk about constructing garments in your teenage Mm -hmm. years in high school. So, I mean, that's very much a sort of application of geometry and figuring out how things go together, but also creative expression. I mean, fashion is so important to a teenager. What were your teenage Mm -hmm. years like and what compelled you to start sewing your own clothes? 
Well, for one thing, we didn't have a lot of money. I was really like the hand-me-down kid, and I, I wanted to make things that we couldn't either couldn't afford or I couldn't find. I really liked making clothes that no one else had. And um, so I put a lot of detail into them. There were a lot of kind of unusual finishes, and, um, and, I, and I started to get really into the kind of craftsmanship of it, so making sure that like they, everything had French seams and you know, just kind of pushing the, the craftsmanship piece. And I was really proud of the garments because they were, they were different than anything else that anyone was wearing or that I could either find or afford. You know, I didn't, didn't know anything about fashion. I used patterns, but it was really more the selection of the fabrics and the trims and the buttons and, you know, just kind of, and I altered things a little bit, so I didn't follow them exactly. So it was fun. It was my first foray really into using equipment and machinery. Yeah. I actually had tried in in junior high school, I had tried to get into the wood shop because I had this fascination with, you know, wanting to learn woodworking tools, but I got almost suspended because it was seen as such a... Uh, a rabble rouser thing for a female to try and get into the wood shop. So I, you know, I got disciplined for asking, oh, man. which was a, a sign of the time. So yes. who knows, you know, I could have been a furniture designer if they just let me in. <laughs> right. But anyway, it sort of made my resolve stronger. So I sort of took all my eyes out on making clothes, which was something that I, you know, was studying in school. We had home economics way back in the dark ages. And so it was considered something that was encouraged. And, you know, I got technical support from my faculty member in middle school. And so that kind of launched the interest in making my own clothes. Fascinating. And then you, you talked about falling in love with photography. And at this point, it sounds like your creativity is in full, like sort of burgeoning flourish mode. I was a pretty academic student, but I was really sick of high school. And, you know, you can see for some of the reasons I mentioned. Plus, I had two older brothers who were really sort of radical at the time, and they were always in trouble. And so when I came in, it was like the certain faculty were rubbing their hands together, like, here's a Summerson we can get, you know. And so it was not a super pleasant year. And so I decided to do 11th to 12th grade in one year. I double booked all my classes and just went for it and got all my requirements done and I had a year after school when I didn't want to apply for college yet. So I sort of did a gap year before they were called gap years. And during the time I had started doing photography and doing a lot of creative writing, and I saw a little ad in the back of the New Yorkers. My parents were pretty intellectual. So, you know, we had the New Yorker magazine at home, which was great. And there was a little ad for this odd school in the absolute rural part of northern Denmark that was based on photography and creative writing. And I decided I had to go. So I did a lot of babysitting. I did a whole bunch of stuff to sort of earn a little bit of cash and ended up being able to go to the summer program in northern Denmark in the middle of nowhere. And it was a program in an old thatched roof farmhouse, uh, very small we would go to the pharmacist to get the chemicals to mix, to use, to make all of the processing chemicals from scratch. We worked only in large format work, so four by five individual sheets of film and eight by 10 cameras. It was really highly technical and, you know, really fascinating. And because I liked the kind of craftsmanship and technique aspects, I found it really exciting. So I got totally taken with this form of making pictures and photography. And I decided that I wanted to stay longer than just the summer. So I went down to Copenhagen and went to a 
bunch of different photographers there and tried to find a job. And I found one photographer that said that he would let me be a studio assistant for the year. So I was all excited. I flew home because I had a return ticket already booked and my middle brother had just had a baby and I wanted to meet the baby. Mm -hmm. And I actually decided at that point to get an application into RISD. So I did all my college application stuff and came back to, to the photography job. And um, in the year that I, I had really good judgment at, you know, 18 or whatever, in the period of time I'd been away, that photographer had gone out of business. So there I was with no job, no income or anything. So I worked out a deal with my parents and I literally lived on $50 a month for the period of time that I was there. And I rented a bicycle. I had a very tight budget. I found a room in a house that somebody let me rent for next to nothing and in return for helping to do cleaning and stuff. And I just stayed in Copenhagen for like six months. And I found a woman that let me apprentice and learn weaving with her. So I studied weaving. I wrote, I went to museums, I took pictures. And it was an amazing, magical, you know, equivalent of a semester. Yeah. And then I came home and, um, and, and I got into RISD. So I came home and started getting ready for, you know, starting RISD. Whoa. Okay. So that's pretty gutsy for somebody who used to hide under her mother's skirt. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about RISD. RISD must have been a pretty exciting time for you then, you know, to be able to start implementing all of your creativity and having the facilities and, and also the student body to interface with. What was that like for you? It was totally terrifying. <laughs> I can relate. <laughs> I, I had only applied to one college. Actually, when I was still in high school earlier, I applied to a college like way early decision before I'd even graduated. And I'd gotten in, but I decided I, I wasn't convinced of what I wanted to study. But when I knew I wanted to go to RISD, I only applied to one school. So it was really risky. Mm -hmm. In those days, you, we actually were interviewed. So I came up from my interview and there was this amazing tree in front of the admissions building that I just looked at because it was so incredibly intricate. And the first day of class, we had come out and try and draw that tree. And that was like a sheer panic attack. Like I had no idea how to approach it. And I looked around me and all of the other people who were drawing were making these beautiful drawings that, you know, it was just like life kind of emerging off the page. And I'm sitting there, you know, sick to my stomach. And <laughs> The first day of figure drawing, I talked to one of my dorm mates on the floor and I just said I was just having such a hard time because I did not know how to draw. And the only drawings I'd ever done in my life were my application drawings. And I knew I'd seen her drawings. They were exquisite. I, she said, let's, let's look at your drawing pad. So we opened up the first drawing and, and it was a figure drawing. And she said, all right, just to orient me a little, which is the front of the body and which is the back? <laughs> oh, no. And, you know, it was... Totally humiliating, but really because, you know, RISD teaches drawing so well, and I think I was a pretty hard worker by the end of that freshman year, my drawings could stand up to anyone's in the class. So, you know, it is something that can be learned. And uh, a lot of that first year was learning how to be an artist, how to push judgment aside, and really understand how to push yourself beyond what you think is possible. So it was the perfect place for me to be. At what point did you get introduced to furniture design? Well, interestingly, RISD had, has a winter session. So after your first semester as a first-year student, you can try something for six weeks over the uh, shorter winter semester. And I had heard that there was a Danish guy teaching in the woodshop. And it was actually not Tay Frid who was the main guy at the time in the woodshop, but 
one of his friends who was also Danish because Tay was away that, that winter session. So I kind of clomped my way down to the woodshop and I had actually learned, I was somewhat um, almost fluent in Danish from the time that I was there and I really loved Denmark. So hearing the talk and being able to sort of, you know, touch base with Denmark again was really exciting. And then, as you know, I had been trying to get into the woodshop mm -hmm. since middle school. So <laughs> yeah. I thought, well, this is like perfect for me. And so I, you know, got into the class and, and started woodworking over that first session um, with this Danish instructor. His name was Hans Wolf. And um, it was the hardest thing I'd ever done. It was even harder than drawing. I had to learn how to get over my fear of all the power tools. How to, I mean, really, the only tools I'd ever used were a tape measure and a sewing machine and scissors. So it was a totally intimidating process, but I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I loved the physical nature of it. I love the sort of smell of it. I love the idea that I could make things that would have function for people to use. I just loved every aspect of it. And so the desire to conquer it was stronger than, you know, my fear. Well, and conquer it, you did. <laughs> I love too that you weren't deterred by that initial experience in middle school where you were reprimanded so, so seriously for just daring to be female and interested in woodworking. And how you've done so much to change that. It's really interesting to me how sometimes you can try to force a kid into a box and that kid will design their life around obliterating that box. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, thank you. I, I do think, though, that it was a different time. I think we really felt like we were revolutionaries. We felt that we could change the world. There was very much a feeling that enlightened women could do anything. And so I never saw myself as a woman trying to do this thing. I just saw myself as me doing this thing. I wouldn't let anybody stop me do what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. We were sort of ahead of the curve politically, you know, uh, in many different ways, socially. It's very different now because I think technology has intimidated a lot of people at the same stages in their life. And also people in generations beyond that from the perspective that you always feel like you're not quite using the full capacity of what's available to you. So in a way, you feel slightly behind the curve, whereas we felt so empowered to be totally ahead of the curve at that time. And I feel really fortunate, actually, that I, that I grew up when I did because I didn't feel that anything was in my way other than myself. And so it was always about conquering these things from my own internal perspective. I can see how that would help build confidence, feeling like you're your own obstacle and in every other way you can be ahead of the curve. Yeah. And I wouldn't actually even call it confidence because I was completely always doubting myself. It was just more like drive. If, if I thought it wasn't good, it was like I'd work on that myself. I, I was very insecure because I was in this place with all these, you know, the best artists from everywhere but it was more just like I felt like I had the right, you know, to try things that mattered to me. Yeah, I like that. And I like the distinction between drive and confidence because there is a, a difference. Sometimes your insecurity can mm -hmm. really help your drive in some ways. Yeah, exactly. So I want to um, talk to you a little bit about what happened after RISD. So you established your practice, which you still operate now for over 35 years. Mm -hmm. And you've won fellowships and awards and you've exhibited all over the place and you've even had pieces acquired by museums. So can you talk a little bit about your practice and the nature of your design and your work? Early on, when I was building up my studio, I was doing a lot of writing. My teacher, Tay Frid, who was my main faculty member, 
was starting to do some articles for a new publication called Fine Woodworking. And Tay used to have me do a lot of his writing anyway. He would even ask me to write my own letters of reference, which was always really awkward. <laughs> but he had some articles that they wanted to publish. And so I ended up doing the photography and the, the editing of his articles. They were his knowledge, but I sort of put them together under his guidance. And those articles were super well received. So Taunton Press, which published the magazine, then decided to do a book project. It was called Tay Frid Teaches Woodworking, and it was about his philosophy and approach and technical expertise. And so they asked me to be the sort of book editor. And I worked for a year right out of school working on that project and did, all again, all the photography and all the editing and organizing for the book. And that was kind of a great refresher of my entire education with Tay. So it was a really great experience. You know, I didn't earn much income from that. And I wasn't at the point yet where I could support myself for my work. So I waitressed. I did, you know, anything that I could to earn money while I bought equipment and eventually got into a situation where I had access to a sublet in a studio. I made some pieces and I heard about an exhibition that was coming up that had a theme that related to one of the pieces I just made. So I just sort of cold sent in a picture of my piece and said, I know I haven't been invited to the show, but I just thought you might be interested in seeing this because it sort of fit in the theme of the show and they accepted the piece. And so that was sort of my first participation in a museum exhibit. And then um, I was able to make a couple more pieces and show them to a gallery that was in Philadelphia that was sort of the premier studio furniture gallery at the time. And the owner liked the pieces because they were so different from everything else that was going on and sold some of the work. And so I started finding more ways to shift the focus from waitressing or the other kind of auxiliary things I was doing to making my work. And shortly after that was given the opportunity to have a show, I think it was three women in a what was at the time the Workbench Gallery, which was a gallery on Park Avenue. The people that had started the Workbench Gallery had in sort of the basement of their main flagship store, but they put a lot of effort into the exhibitions and the PR, mm -hmm. etc. And I had my first kind of New York show, and I pretty much sold out the work and got enough commissions to work for about two years. So at that point, I was sort of off and running. And then I continued to make pieces for their group shows and expanded the galleries that I showed in and the commissions that I did. And it just sort of took off from there. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. 
Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. You said that your work was so different from everything else that was going on at the time. Can you describe what your work was like and what kind of culture it was born into? 
at the time, it was a pretty male-dominated field, and um, the lens that men tended to come into the field through had to do with technical expertise. So there was a lot of emphasis on technique and kind of like the rodeo of outdoing each other's technique. So, mm-hmm. you know, bigger, better, stronger, etc. And so there were people that were interested in, you know, bent lamination or, I mean, you know, I don't need to go into all the technical terms, but just different aspects of technique. And there were individuals that would sort of become the expert in that area. And my interest lay elsewhere. I was really concerned with showing that I had the technical prowess to pull off complex pieces. But I think I did enter it from a much more aesthetic perspective, really thinking more about the formal qualities of art that I had learned at RISD. So composition and texture and balance and stance and also the sort of emotional aspects. And a lot of the other furniture makers at the time had not been through that art school experience. So they had a different, you know, more technical approach. So my work looked different. It wasn't following the kind of lineage of work that preceded it, although I'm sure it was influenced by it. As more women came into the field and we we got to know each other, that was sort of true of all the work that was being done by women. It was very different and it, it broadened the audience because it brought in a lot of response that hadn't happened up till then. And, you know, I was in that early stage of that so that people like Amy Devers, a couple, you know, decades later, could become famous artists. Um, But it was really exciting. That was kind of the roots of it. You know, this is in the mid 70s, you know, very early 80s. Would, Would you call that the studio furniture movement? Yeah, it was definitely the studio furniture movement, which was kind of post-World War II and, you know, went very strongly through the 80s and into the 90s and then kind of bifurcated or even turned into a, it sort of became rooted in different directions. You know, late 90s, things started to move in multiple directions. And I think it's harder to define it all as studio furniture. I think the design world really entered much more into the furniture realm in a more visible way and design which had been centered more in Europe, an American movement started coming into play that had real resonance that has continued to evolve since then. So it got a lot more complex. But at the time, those of us who were building our own work, either in limited editions or individual, you know, one-of-a-kind pieces, really were in sort of a separate realm that was very reliant on galleries, commissions, exhibitions. And that's that's changed a little bit today. Yes. Okay. So while running your practice, but I understand that right around 1985, you returned to RISD to start teaching and you taught graduate students furniture design in the ID department. And you did that for about 10 years. And then you co-founded RISD's freestanding furniture department, which is where I went to grad school and is still in operation today. Can you talk to us about teaching and how you discovered your passion for pedagogy? When I was a student at RISD, I I really wanted to do furniture and there was no furniture department. So I was told at the time when I was a freshman that the way to do it was through sculpture. So I went into sculpture over the summer, the head of sculpture changed and had a different philosophy. And so I did the prerequisites of sculpture, but was told that I couldn't continue in the department if I was going to make functional work. However, they wanted me to stay in the department because they thought I had a good shot at becoming a sculptor. So I was really in a dilemma, but I decided I really wanted to make functional work. So I was told I had a transfer into ID, industrial design at the time, which at that time 
was aligned much more with the architectures. So we had sort of a common beginning curriculum when we had to take things like geology and statistics. And, you know, it was a very different curriculum. So it wasn't really until my third year at RISD that I got to focus, after doing all those prerequisites, I got to focus on studios where I could actually develop furniture. And I was so frustrated. I, I mean, I loved all the stuff I was learning, but I was so frustrated to be sort of what felt like being held back. So mm-hmm. when, I, when I had the opportunity after being called in to teach the graduate students, and I was, it was by my former teacher, Tay Frid, who was running the grad program and was getting ready to retire and, and thought that I would be the right person to take over the graduate program. So you know, I went in for my interview with the dean at the time, who was a very well-known architect, Friedrich St. Florian. And I said, Friedrich, I'm not qualified to teach graduate students. I don't have a master's degree. And he said, well, you have the professional equivalent. There's no one really in the field that's done the writing and exhibiting and design work that you've done. So you're perfectly qualified. So that was kind of a shock for me, but an, a nice one. And so I thought I'd give it a try. I came in sort of developing the curriculum from thinking about where I thought students should end up and then working backwards to say, what should they learn to get there? And when I started, the graduate program was very small. It was only a few students, but it quickly built up and I just loved teaching. I felt like I had a natural affinity to see into individuals to decide how they could develop themselves in the best way. So my approach, as you well know, Amy, mm-hmm. was was not about like, here's the body of knowledge and I'm going to pass it from me to you. It was more like, let's look at what you're interested in and then let me give you some tools to unlock doors that you can go through on your own to figure out where you want to go. I really loved it. I worked with amazing students and it just was a real privilege to be developing their curriculum, their practice, and to be engaged in a very highly intellectual, at the same time, aesthetic and sort of user-rich experience with students in, a, in completely individualized ways with each individual student. Um, I mean, there were days when I used to describe teaching as going into a room of vampires and slitting your wrists and just holding them out to their mouths. <laughs> yes. But um, so it was intense, uh-huh. but it was also incredibly exciting to see that the progress that graduate students made in two years was phenomenal and um, or two or three years, whatever took them. And it was, you know, just the most gratifying thing. And So I I eventually felt like I really, there were so many undergraduate students who wanted to take a similar track and the ID department was great at RISD, but there was no guarantee that you would go through a sequence in the right order to learn furniture design. So I proposed, it's a longer story, but just to shorten it, I proposed a curriculum and a and a plan for an undergraduate program that would complement the graduate program. And it was highly political at RISD, but eventually it went through. And at the time, we thought we would have about 30 or 40 majors. And this year right now, the furniture department is 100 majors with a wait list. So it's, it's really been successful. Yeah, and you did that for a long time. You were the head for 16 years, but then at some point you kind of decided to move in a little bit of a different direction away from just general furniture. So you were provost and now you're the president of RISD. So could you Mm -hmm. talk about that transition and, you know, was it an easy transition for you? And then maybe talk a little bit about, you know, what your plans are for RISD in the future. 
I had no interest in being an administrator. It was not for any reason of uh, a vision in my mind that this is where I would end up. It was always about something else. And when I first was asked to serve in a kind of interim role, I felt like I didn't want to leave the classroom, but I also felt like there were things going on in the world and in the school that I felt I could contribute to. And those were more important to me than my own comfort level or the lack of teaching. I felt like I could do what I was doing on a, on a broader playing field. So I, I came in as an interim as provost first, and then I had got so much going and had so much in play that when the search came up for the the sitting provost, I put my name in the application pool because I really felt like there was business I could see that I wanted to happen at RISD, but also in the larger world. Our students have enormous impact out in the world, our alumni, and I felt like I could contribute to that. And then a similar thing happened with the presidency where I was asked by the board to step in on an interim basis. I really thought it was for an interim, but then I started to think about the kind of people that were out there in the field. And I knew a lot of people through being provost. I saw presidents in other schools. I knew the provost that would probably apply for the job. I don't know who applied because it was an international search. And I know there were hundreds of applicants, but I just felt like I had an insight into this place and the way to really help this place to leap that was unique. And so that's what sort of drove me to apply. And then I was fortunate to get it. But as I said at the beginning, I really felt like I had had such great fortune in my life as an artist and designer and that there was no bigger honor in a way than to create the conditions for future generations to have that same fulfilling experience. And that was really one of the big driving impetuses for deciding to apply for this. Well, I just want to say that, I mean, I know you personally, and I know that you're you're deeply interested in creative expression and craftsmanship, but you're also very much... Um, I want to say an inventor and a midwife of things that aren't born yet of, of ideas. Mm -hmm. And you've always had this sort of like courageous pioneering spirit. And so your willingness to take on politics and administration in order to create these conditions is very gutsy, but also I can see it being a natural extension for you. And so along those same lines, I know that you've always been interested in creating a more a diverse population of designers in the future world. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what you've got in play at RISD for helping to funnel a more diverse population into the design pipeline. I think art and design education right now it's, it is in a moment like no other time before. This is the moment when everyone is realizing that the kind of creative thinkers that come out of a place like RISD are the people that are needed in every industry because we're living in such rapid change, uncertain times, every kind of work is different. And so who better than an artist or a designer to contribute to moving culture forward, to moving work forward, to moving industries forward. And when you look at it from that perspective, that the artists and designers are really the innovators that are going to unlock the future, you have to look at what the demographics are that are defining that future. And the demographics are changing dramatically. The way that young people identify is completely different. There are kids talking about transgender issues in middle school and elementary school now. The idea of what will be a majority or a minority in 20 years is completely different than it is now. So if you're talking about true innovation, you have to be building the leadership and the education 
for that world 20, 50 years, 20 or 50 years from now. And that is a very diverse world. So I don't think you can be an informed designer and be designing for a world that existed 20 years ago. That's gone. So it's absolutely important that that folds into everything from, I mean, it doesn't even start from college. It starts from before. I have a big initiative called the Social Equity and Inclusion Initiative, which is sort of soft launched last year, but will launch this September. And it's very ambitious and broad and has different aspects to it. But it looks at students all the way from prior to college to actually get kids who might not think about art or design school as a lucrative way to go get educated and, and be a professional. Or their parents might not think about that. They may not understand Many parents don't understand the versatility and the success of the kind of education that we offer and what our alumni are able to achieve. So we've created a whole series of, we have a high school program, after school program called Project Open Door, which is extremely successful in Rhode Island with four different school systems, after school and Saturday courses for kids. And a number of those kids go on to apply to art schools, but others just to college. But it's a great preparation for that world. And then we're also, um, for the first time, offering full scholarships for kids from various cities to come to RISD for a six-week pre-college program, fully funded, with not just room board tuition, but also travel, materials fund, mentorship, etc., to try and open up the pipeline of who thinks about art school and who can get in. At the point of admission, there's already an enormous amount of privilege mm. baked into the system. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to play with that a little bit and make it more inclusive. And then, you know, once students get here, it's really important that we support them with the right staff, the right policies, the right pedagogy, the right resources, and really make the same kind of education accessible to everyone who's here. And then that will, you know, carry on out into the career world as well. So it's a very long and complex program, but one that I'm totally committed to and have been able to actually raise a lot of financial support toward as well. We've raised funds for students to have access to materials, to have access to sponsored internships, travel and study abroad kind of funds, as well as special mentorship programs for first-generation students and others from underrepresented groups who, who just need a little bit of extra support to succeed here. I love that. I love it so much. And I'm not surprised at all that that's the kind of thing that you've taken on as a challenge, a personal challenge. <laughs> I know you've also championed the idea of critical making because, um, well, critical making is the kind of thing that can lead to innovation. Can you talk to us about what you mean by critical making and how it leads to innovation? So critical making was defined as the intersection between intelligent making and critical thinking. And it's something that we know very clearly through our educational system that you learn a lot through your hands. Um, as Frank Wilson likes to say, the author of the book, The Hand, at the point when the opposable thumb evolved, the brain doubled in size. And it was almost as if the brain couldn't keep up with what the hand was teaching it. And so we know that there's an enormous amount of intelligence that comes from making real materials, real scale, physical engagement, physical embodiment with ideas so that was sort of the development of the notion of critical making and the book that we wrote called The Art of Critical Making. In our new strategic plan, which we're building now, I've been working with our provost, Pradeep Sharma, to talk about what the next stages of that will be. And 
We're looking now at critical making evolving into something around biomaking and bringing the sciences more directly into the practice of art and design and looking at how the biological world, not only through biomimicry or through philic design or other aspects of studying biology to see how it can inform artists and designers, but really looking at the systems and the systems on different scales that seem to be these kind of core components of the world that we live in, all the way from the microscopic to the cosmic. Mm -hmm. And that's really fascinating. And I think will be an interesting direction in the future of art and design. So we have this extraordinary nature lab at RISD, which is like a small natural history museum, but it also has electron microscopes and really beautiful data visualization equipment. So we're looking at how we can take unique resources like our museum, like our library with its incredible collections and materials collection, like our nature lab, and really differentiate some ways of understanding critical making in the future through these lenses. Um, And the next big push here will be around this notion of our nature lab and biomaking. Well, speaking of of science and the integration of the arts, I also know that you're an advocate of STEM into STEAM, which is advocating for the inclusion of arts education within science, technology, engineering, and math curricula. And that's because we believe that the arts and design thinking is the kind of thing that allows for cross-pollination and the creative application of all this other data that comes from science, technology, engineering, and math. Yeah. What's going on with that now in terms of what you've got going on at RISD? So the STEAM initiative started at RISD and became really through our own advocacy, became part of the Department of Education's definition of what a core academic credential should be, that it, that it should be considered part of academic requirement to have art and design in some fashion in the curriculum. In, in this new administration, I'm not sure it will carry on the same way as in the past one, but we are committed to the notion that Artists and designers really bring different abilities to the table when research is being done, when innovation is being defined. We know that firsthand. A lot of people have interpreted STEAM as sort of adding the, the kind of representation or graphics to a science problem or looking at making things pretty or understandable. And, you know, we do all that, but we do much more than that because artists think differently. Mm-hmm. Various places have uh, of sort of a high intelligence order have recruited here. I'm not going to say which places because it's, you know, I'd, ha- I'd have to sign a non-disclosure <laughs> or something, but just specifically because our students see patterns differently. And so, you know, people recognize that there's different brain wiring that happens when you work this hard at the kind of learning that happens here. And so we still very much are invested in STEAM and we've kind of moved that into a platform that's really about informing K through 12. So through our teaching and learning in art and design, our teacher education courses, we've worked on curricula with PBS and NOVA and scholastic publications. We've worked on a lot of programming to help teachers in K through 12 bring art and design more naturally into their students' experience. But interestingly, this notion of biomaking is almost controlling it from the art and design end and bringing the sciences in. So it's sort of the next iteration of that, which to say, yes, STEAM is really important, but it's also rather than feeling a little bit in some interpretations as if it's the added component saying, what if we start from the core of art and design and then build into into that what we feel will actually make innovation happen in the best way in the future? And, 
You know, for me, innovation is often about intersections, about where two bodies of knowledge intersect. Mm -hmm. And in those places, I think there's much more complexity. And I think innovation sleeps in those places. And it's our job as educators to wake it up. And so when I do educational lectures or workshops with various corporations and on panels and events, I often try and bring people to thinking about these places of intersection and really looking at the natural innovation that happens in those places between two states. And when you bring together teams of people with various kinds of expertise who speak different language, that's where new knowledge is getting built as much as anywhere. So, you know, for me, that's a really exciting thing to think about in the future of art and design. Yeah. And I love that you said that it's not just about adding pretty graphics to scientific information, because sometimes people (laughs) really think that that's, you know, the only thing that art is. That's the role. But it's so much more than that. It is a way of thinking. So thank you. Yeah. And I I think the other, the other part of that too, is that there's so much information. We have access to so much. There's so much data out there and someone needs to make sense of it, not just from the perspective of presentation, but from actually sorting out the human in that. And artists and designers have a very different understanding of human experience because they're always taking you know, the metaphorical blank sheet of paper and making something that's never existed before. And they're doing it from a personal point of view that uses all of their haptic abilities and their talents and senses and observations and perceptions. That sort of skill set, that creativity is very much about what will drive the future. So I do think that artists are needed to make sense of all this big data and to make it presentable. We had some graduate students a few years ago that did an illustrated guide to the 900 page healthcare bill, which is now being asked to be repealed and replaced. But it was so complicated for people to understand it that they did like the illustrated version of it. I mean, there are really wonderful ways that communication can be enhanced, but it does go deeper than that to really understanding the origins of ideas, the origins of questions, how you frame new questions that will actually encourage research that will help us to solve some of these giant challenges that we're all facing as a planet. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I really need to ask you about this op-ed that you recently wrote that's called we need more boredom in our lives. And I feel like giving you a virtual Mm -hmm. high five. But before I do, tell me more (laughs) about the power of boredom. I kind of link it to the power of imagination. And you know, you were asking me earlier about my childhood. And you know, my childhood, I didn't have a lot of stuff. I didn't have a lot of exposure. You know, I mean, I had wonderful family, but I was bored a lot. And out of those moments of boredom came probably my greatest imaginary life. I watch young people now and they're sort of never away from their technology or if they are, they're panicking. And the notion for me of boredom is actually this sort of space. It's creating space that's unstructured, that doesn't have expectations and smart and creative people will fill that space by using their imaginations. So it's really about creating a stage for play, a stage for imagination to flourish and to to just see what comes up, to not have a pre-programmed idea about what comes up. Amy will attest to the fact that I used to do a project with graduate students where I'd make them do this really painful drawing sequence beyond what they wanted to naturally do. And over time, it was a sequential drawing assignment that happened over a certain period of time. They were held in a room until they finished it, essentially. 
And watching students over time getting discomfort with that earlier and earlier in the process, because when you hit an obstacle in your own work or in your own day, what you generally do is you get up, you go and you check your email, you know, you do something that takes you out of that process of that difficult space. But so often, if you can just sit there in that boring, torturous, unknown, undetermined space, that's where a new idea will pop out. If you can just force yourself to be there without a, a pre-programmed idea of how to distract yourself. So that's really the, the emphasis of the boredom thing. I remember there's a sort of initial outpouring of what's on the top of, of my imagination. And then there's like still so much time to fill and you start to feel this anxiety over, um, you don't know what to do. You don't know what to put on the page. You don't know what's in the reserves and you almost have to get to a place where you can tolerate and get comfortable with that anxiety in order to open the door to your reserves. And that's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, that anxiety is about change. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people aren't naturally, don't naturally like change. It's scary. So, you know, when you look at children and their, their developmental stages, before they do some big thing, they usually regress a little bit. And I think there's just a natural innate thing that help, that asks us to sort of stop and take pause and be anxious when we're about to go through a change. But if you learn, and it is something you can learn, to actually sit through that and not distract yourself and really live in that kind of boring or anxious space, oftentimes that's where the best ideas will start to evolve. And so it's almost like another kind of discipline to learn how to live, as you put it, Amy, sort of passing through that anxiety and just seeing what happens. Well, speaking of that exercise and my time at RISD, I feel like under your mentorship, my brain grew almost as though I had just gained an opposable thumb. Like it expanded so big in my head, sometimes my head hurt. And so for that, I thank you. But I want to know on a personal level, like what or who out in the world is expanding your brain these days? Because you seem to me like somebody who kind of is always expanding your brain. (laughs) Well, I I appreciate that you were also an, an, an outstanding student. So it was easy to watch your brain grow. You know, honestly, I think it's the students that are making me expand my brain the most. I mean, I read all the time. I attend a lot of lectures. I'm really, you know, always trying to learn and keep up to date with new ideas and challenges and questions. But the students are really different in a wonderful way. And I'm trying to really understand what's driving their thinking about their own identities, about their own experience of life, about the the future that they want to see. That's a huge learning space for me because it is a different generation. It is a different time. And it requires me to, in a sense, be a student and, you know, kind of reverse the role and really listen and really pay attention. And that's really expanding my brain. I just love being in that environment of all those brains expanding and all that critical discourse and all of that uniqueness and and people Mm -hmm. figuring out how to express them. I can imagine that that keeps you young. Well, have you seen me lately? (laughs) You look great. You know, sometimes I, 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 you know, I'm filling out a form and I fill in my age. It's like, oh, when did that happen? Anyway, (laughs) no, it is true. Being around this um, young energy is super, super, uh, it's a super privilege. Well, I can imagine that being an administrator of, you know, a very well-known college, you would have to face a lot of challenges, maybe some turbulence, but are there any specific tools or practices that you kind of utilize to 
deal with those challenges or, you know, sail pretty smoothly through turbulent situations? You know, I think um, you have to toughen your skin a little bit and, and really think about what matters and not take things personally. And that's really hard when you're a person that, you know, likes people. But in, in my experience, it's often, turbulence is often, as we talked about earlier, about um, it's a precursor to change. And what I think works with administrators or leaders about change is to actually formulate an idea that's not just in, you know, something that you impose on people, that, but that's informed by the community around you and the people who have expertise that you don't, but to really work on creating something in your mind and in your imagination that's better than what currently exists, and then putting it out there. And, and you know, if it's a good image or idea, people will say, oh, yeah, well, I want that. And so they'll be more willing to take the steps, even if it involves them giving up something or having to change themselves, because you're putting a picture that's more interesting and exciting in front of them. That's easy to do when you're in a position of developing new things. When you're taking things away or making changes that actually people have to adapt to, that's much harder. And the only way that the tools for making that succeed are really about being open, being transparent. I don't think, you know, any college president that I know of or work closely with is an evil person. They all have great intentions, but oftentimes they just can't do certain things that people would like, or there's a reason for the institution to change directions about certain things. And when those are well communicated, when the rationale is put in front of people, they're generally more mm -hmm. willing to hear it than if it's just done and there's no communication. So it's really about that, you know, those two things about imagination, developing an idea that's really exciting, putting it in front of people and giving them chances to try it before it's fully mm -hmm. committed to. And, and that's in the positive way. And in the negative way, it's really about communicating a rationale that is all about um, both of those things actually are driven by a value system. So it's about being very clear about your mm -hmm. value system and how that's determining decision making in either a advancing way or in a reducing way. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And I also think, you know, communication between the people who, you know, you have to either negotiate with or compromise with also kind of understand, you know, your intention and, you know, what you are trying to do and, and, and why. Yeah, absolutely. Honestly, I think that works well for parenting, too. I think if you take the time to explain <laughs> the rationale to your kids and they understand that it's you're not just handing down a mandate that doesn't, you know, align with what they want in the moment, <laughs> they're much more likely to stop and think about it. And at least they'll understand why it's in their best interest or something. Absolutely. No, absolutely. <laughs> it's true. And, you know, it's. I mean, we're all trying to develop as people and, you know, and in my case, I have the, the opportunity and the you know, kind of privilege of developing a school as well, an ins a, a longstanding institution. And, you know, we want to bring our best self to that and we want to create the best future for something that is so dramatically needed in our world right now. More than ever, we need the intelligence and the talents and the abilities of artists and designers. Mm -hmm. So this is a moment to sort of go into that full bore. And it's not always pleasant or easy. And, you know, there are days when I go home and I feel so battered, but it's, it's the long view that sort of sustains you. And you've talked a little bit about some of the initiatives, you know, you've got STEAM, you've got your diversity initiative. Are there any other important things that you have going on or that are coming up in the future that you want to mention? 
Well, we're working on some new degrees that really look at understanding cultures in a much broader sense. You know, a lot of what's going on right now politically has to do with understanding that history is also a biased, can be a biased view. When we talk about what history is, it's through certain people's experience rather than others. So Mm -hmm. we're looking at degrees that actually widen the understanding about the histories of art and design and global cultures at RISD, and also looking at some initiatives that are really geared towards bringing good thinking to issues around nature and culture and sustainability. In terms of the campus itself, I'm really interested in seeing us um, evolve some new kinds of workspaces that are really geared towards 21st century learning in arts and design and spaces that have the opportunity for more flexibility and for more collaboration and for longer range projects. I'm also really interested in thinking about RISD students as, you know, we'll always have the core of the degree granting students, but we also are working, doing some executive education. And as I said earlier, working on some pre-college preparation education and really thinking about how the agenda of what we do here can inform other audiences and work in other environments and circumstances. So really broadening the message as much as we can within the capacity that we have to deliver that. Yes. You spread it like a virus, Roseanne. You proselytize. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Okay, so we talked a lot. You've given yourself over to academia, and for that, we really appreciate it. But you're also a a full-spectrum individual, a human. I want to know personally, (laughs) is there anything that you have yet to accomplish or yet to experience in this life in order to feel like a fulfilled and complete human? Oh, wow. Well, yes, there's so much. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I started doing photography again, interestingly, since I've become president, because it's something that I can do that doesn't take three months to make one thing. Mm. And, and I can do it when I travel, I'm traveling a lot. So I've been giving myself little assignments and thinking about some new kinds of artwork that I want to make, I will still always make things in my studio when I can get there. But really thinking about a broader view of creative work that I can do within the confines of my, you know, very crazy schedule and circumstance. And I, I still have ideas in my head that I want to see come to life. So that's really exciting. You know, so from from a personal perspective, from the perspective of an artist and a designer, I still have a lot of designs in my head that I want to bring forward. And, and I, you know, continue to keep a sketchbook. I continue to write, you know, for articles, but also personal writing. In addition to that, though, I really want the world to understand the value of this kind of practice. And, you know, my dream would be that every single creative person in the on the planet would think about RISD as the number one place they want to go to school and that if they could get into school, they'd have access to our education. And that's a very steep hill to climb, but it's a dream that I'm keeping in my the forefront of my mind because it's such a beautiful image. Mm-hmm. So those are, are some of the things that I think I um, am still hoping to achieve in my life. I'd also like to get back on my bike a little bit and do a couple more centuries because I, I was really into doing these kind of charity bike rides and loving that. And I, I don't have the time to train anymore. So trying to find any, some kind of equivalent thing for that would be another kind of personal goal. I like it. I like it. Well, thank you so much for sharing your passion for pedagogy, your expansive knowledge and your ambition and your drive for moving arts and design education forward, but also expanding the cultural understanding of what arts and design education can do. 
That's really powerful. And so thank you for talking to us. We want to tell our listeners where they can find you on the web and social media. And are you Instagramming any of these new photographs you're taking? Yeah, well, so not the ones that are for exhibition possibly, but I mean, yes, I do a lot of um, photography on Instagram at, at R. Summerson. It's both at R. Summerson and Twitter and Instagram. And um, I want to thank you and say, Amy, um, you know, just so fulfilling I mean, you're an exact example of why this profession has been so rewarding to, to watch you embark on your career and, and engage all these conversations throughout the world. So, bravo. Oh, my God. Well, thank you so much, Roseanne. And I hope to see your face again soon. <laughs> thank you. Thank you both. Bye-bye. That was so much nutrition. I feel like I just had like dense superfood. <laughs> yeah, she's awesome. Everything she's championing is incredible. The things that she's doing at Rizzi are awesome. But also she just seems like she's on the pulse of everything that's happening in design. She has this really... This type of leadership that is not about breaking down doors as much as it is persuading you or convincing you that it's a really good idea to open them. In other words, when she said that her idea of teaching is not about imposing a body of knowledge mm -hmm. on you, but, but of seeing what's inside you and helping you sort of unlock those doors for yourself... That's the way she leads as well. And I think it's incredibly effective. Yes, because you can kind of appeal to what people want and convince them that you're giving them what they need. Yeah, and it's not about pure persuasion. It's about actually being really thoughtful about these things from all mm -hmm. angles and figuring out what would be a solution that might bring the most benefit to everybody involved. And then being able to articulate that. Um it's almost like she can encourage a flower to bloom. Do you know what I mean? It's not like she's <laughs> so... I know, I'm gone. Sorry. I'm getting <laughs> off track. I like it, though. But it, it's, it's not like good... she's forcing the flower to bloom. And it's not like she's persuading or hypnotizing the flower to bloom. It's almost like she's in communication with all the cells. And together, they agree, yeah, blooming would be a good right. idea. <laughs> and so they all do it of yeah, their own accord. <laughs> totally. I'm really glad to hear her also talk about the idea that you can learn creative things. She talked about learning how to draw mm -hmm. and she mentioned something else about, you know, things that can be learned in the process of education. So I think about all the things that I was that I say, like, oh, I can't do that. Or thinking about students or designers or other people that I hear just saying like, oh, gosh, I wish I could be an artist or oh, I wish I could make this or I, if I, I wish I was good at that or X, Y, or Z. And I think there are a lot of things that you can be taught, but a lot of people are just intimidated or feel insecure about those things. And what she said was, if you have the drive, you can learn it. They do say, though, that like some of the most talented people have never like tried the thing that they could be the best at. So like if you don't try or, you know, take a class in it or make an attempt it's possible you'll never know yeah think of all the people in the world if nobody said oh i can't do that because i'm not good at it before trying think of like the power of that natural resource that we could unleash yeah. 
Wow. I mean, that's what Roseanne's right. And, to do. and that's why so I, awesome. I thought it was really important to mention that because, you know, when you're young and impressionable and you go into a school, you know, wanting to study one thing, but you've got to take drawing 101 um, to, to get to the next level. Like you shouldn't be intimidated if you can't draw because you'll eventually draw something that'll either be amazing <laughs> or you'll learn how to draw and it'll get you to where you need to go. I do want to mention too about what she when she talked about boredom which really it's mm, it, it's mm-hmm. boredom but it's also being in the moment. So instead of distracting yourself by like going off and doing something else you kind of stay in your uncomfortable moment and I think that's really good advice but it is incredibly difficult Well, especially with our devices today, when there is that bored minute, our impulse is to pick up our phone and you prevent yourself from enjoying the boredom and the accompanying anxiety that then leads to opening this door that you don't even know where the knob is at this point. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think too, like getting comfortable with being uncomfortable is a really great tool. And the sooner you can like master that, Probably the better because, you know, as you get into the workforce, it doesn't really get easier. You don't overcome anxiety. I mean, you're still forced to deal with stress and deal with situations where you might have deadlines and stuff. So I think as soon as you can start learning how to adapt to being uncomfortable or being anxious without distraction will really be a valuable tool for you. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. I think the people who spend their life running away from uncomfortable situations will be running their whole life. And the people who figure out how to confront them and move through them will be making progress their whole life. All right, Jamie, let's go get into some uncomfortable situations. (laughs) Wait, this podcast (laughs) is an uncomfortable situation for me. You know I don't like talking to people. (laughs) This is me being comfortable being uncomfortable. Hey, thanks for listening. Please do us a favor and write us a review on iTunes. It really helps people find us. And we'd like to share these stories with as many people as possible. And subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And go to cleverpodcast.com to sign up for our newsletter, read the show notes, and see images of Roseanne's work. And definitely connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Clever Podcast. We love hearing from you. This episode of Clever was edited by Chris Modell of Your Studio with music by L1011. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.